I'm becoming a hip pastor with my bar stool up here. I'm not that cool. My back hurts. So uh, I think the cool, the cool guys use the stools. I guess I could be cool for a week. Would you pray with me? Father, we look to you and your power, banking on your might. You rose Christ from the dead. And now you have sent your spirit to be with your people, and you, Holy Spirit, work in such a way that you vivify and strengthen and sharpen our faith to see the beauty of Christ, who is the face of the invisible God. So God, may we see your face. I tremble at your word. It is perfect. And if I read it alone without preaching, it'd be enough. Use your word for your people. You promised to do that, Lord. And so we look to you by faith this morning. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, I don't know how much you know about my family and I, uh, but my wife and I, Lizzie, we have three children. Um, they are beautiful children, two boys, one little girl. We have one on the way, and I really love and rejoice in this um, role that I get to participate in, which is being a dad. One of the things that I uh, enjoy most about being a dad is how my sons actually think I'm the strongest man in the world. Every time I need a little bit of an ego boost, I show them my muscles, and they go, whoa, man. And I'm like, yeah, ain't that right, boys? Those are nice, huh? <laughs> and they ask me these crazy questions about my strength. As they look at my muscles, they, they ask me questions such as, um, Dad, can you lift our house with just one finger? <laughs> or they ask me questions like, hey, Dad, if you and the Hulk were to get into a fight, who would win? And they're serious about those questions. And I'm like really excited that they ask me questions like that. One of the things that I delight in and enjoy most in our Martin household is right before bedtime. Usually the kids are downstairs. Uh, Lizzie sends the order to send one of them up. And uh, the other day I saw one of those kids um, receive the order from Lizzie. Lizzie said, hey, go up the stairs and get ready for bed. And one of my sons looked up the stairs at that dark toy room, and I saw on his face a look of uh, fear and dread. And I thought to myself, while well, sitting at the kitchen table, well, I can send him up there, command him to go up there, or I can be an awesome dad and go with him. And so I said to him, son, do you want me to go with you? And he said, yeah, dad, I do. And so um, I got up off the, the chair. I walked over to the stairs where he was standing, and as soon as I got close to that stairwell, he went sprinting up through the toy room into that dark space. And my other son, he, uh, he shows his confidence in my presence a little bit differently. Usually when I go upstairs with him, he enters into a dark room doing ninja moves. He goes, here, I might hurt my back, but he, he goes like this, and it's like the coolest thing in the whole entire world because my little ninja move son is confident and wants all the possible bad guys to know in that dark room in the surrounding hallway who's there. And he lifts his hands up like this. And, um, and here's why I love this. Because deep down, 
um, both my sons and I know that their confidence in dark places does not come from themselves, but from my presence and promise support as I go with them. And I love being their dad. And this is what I delight in and care about most, protecting, providing, supporting, giving courage, and proving my love to my sons over and over so they would know without a shadow of doubt that I am the dad who will meet their needs. I love to prove my love over and over to my sons. It's what makes me a good father. This morning, as we're continuing on in our series in Exodus, this is actually what we're going to see. How the Lord God for his people Israel did not just come to deliver them from their distress while they were under the hand of Pharaoh in Egypt. But then, as he sent them on their journey to pursue the promised land, that he, God himself, gave to them his personal presence. That our God is the God who goes with his people so they, his people, can enjoy the benefits of his salvation and the promises of his continued support and love. And as we turn together to this chapter this morning, I'd like to ultimately remind you how all these promises of grace culminate in the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you have a Bible or cell phone, please feel free to turn that on or open to Exodus chapter 14. I've titled the sermon this morning, uh, not that, or that, God goes with his people. God goes with his people, and I'd like to show you three points from our text. If you're taking notes, here's the three points I'd like to show you. Number one, I'd like to show you what we see. Number two, I'd like to show you how God works. And number three, I'd like to show you why God saves. What we see, how God works, and why he saves. Right now, we're moving to point number one, what we see. Last week, Dr. Stephen Estock did a wonderful job preaching uh, for us through chapter 13. And uh, what he reminded us of during the time together is something that I'd like to begin to remind you of here this morning, and that is how we as a church have now reached the point in the Exodus story where Israel has been freed from Egypt and taken out of slavery by and through God's grace. Israel now, in this point of time in the story, has been personally rescued and delivered out from slavery and captivity under Pharaoh. And what we need to remember about this deliverance is that their departure was not sketchy or um, uncertain. Israel did not leave Egypt uncertain or secretly, but they had an overt departure from Egypt. They left Egypt with bold confidence. Even here in our chapter, if you look in verse 8, the word that Moses uses to describe Israel's marching through the wilderness after leaving that nation is defiance. In other words, God's people as they left Egypt were not worried who was behind them or where they came from. After they left Pharaoh and saw Pharaoh hit his knees as he was humbled by the great God, the Lord of hosts, the the, the one who commands the army angels, and the, the plague of death hit his nation, he hit his knees, they left that place not just with with defiance, but plundering the nation. They left with blessings and all the finest of riches and jewelry. It was God's mighty hand that freed 
Israel through supernatural signs, miracles, and wonders. In other parts of the Old Testament, it goes on to say that Israel left Egypt on God's eagle's wings. In other words, they supernaturally rode on eagles' wings as God himself brought them to himself. And in chapter 13 uh, last week, we saw for the first few minutes or moments as Israel was in the wilderness, how God led them through the wilderness with his very own presence. If you remember, that happened through the pillar of fire by night and that cloud by day. God was leading them to different places after they got out of Egypt and were journeying through the wilderness. And if you look here, our story actually begins with this really interesting instruction that comes from God to Moses concerning the next location where the Lord desired to lead them. Verse 1 begins and says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Turn back and encamp in, in front of Pi-Hiroth, between Migdal and the sea. No one knows where this location is uh, modern day, uh, but the text is actually pretty straightforward. Uh, what the author wants for us to notice here about this lo- location is overtly present. He actually repeats the word twice, and that is that Israel was next to the Red Sea. If you look at the end of verse 2, it says, God says, and you shall encamp facing it by the sea. See here, see there. Two seas. By a body of water. Israel's location next to the Red Sea and God's bringing them there is actually what sets up the drama of this story. And what I want for us to realize as we begin to look at it is uh, how God here is actually setting up the entire miracle. And how he is not only setting up and preparing to part the Red Sea, but if you look there, he also tells the people through Moses all the exact events that were about to take place. Verse 3, for Pharaoh will say to the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And this is exactly what Pharaoh did. Apparently what happened was that Pharaoh had some military um, assignments for border control. And those border control agents saw Israel um, uh, wandering in the wilderness close to Egypt. And they saw that they had backed themselves up against a wall. And so one of his military advisors probably came to Pharaoh and said, Hey, Pharaoh, if there was ever a time for you to strike Right now would be the time to strike. If you're doubting if um, your decision to let the Israelites go is bad, now's the time to hit. They're backed up against the Red Sea. And so Pharaoh in verse 6 listened, and the text says this. So he, Pharaoh, made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over them. Verse 9. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen over, uh, horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea. Here's the picture. Pharaoh and the army is coming through the mountains. God's people are tucked back up against the sea. They hear them. Verse 10, 
When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And what did Israel do? And they feared greatly. In Hebrew, in my opinion, the text is most uh, more accurately translated and to, to mean, and the people were terrified. The, the narrative, the context in this narrative is building for us in three ways, which I want us to notice. Number one, um, Moses is reminding us of the sovereign Lord and his power. Number two, Moses is reminding us of God's um, or of Pharaoh's worldly might and power. And number three, in light of these two competing powers, Moses is also showing us God's people's shifting heart. How they once left Egypt confident in God. But after being delivered out from Egypt, now facing a new dilemma, what seemed to be a giant dilemma, how they lost all of their confidence. Might I remind us here, my friends, that Israel right now in this story is in the very presence of God. The pillar and cloud are here. And yet still, Israel is terrified. How is that even possible? Is it they, that they forgot God? Well, maybe, but he's there visibly. So it's probably not so much that they forgot God. It's probably more that they knew God was real, but as they looked at their current condition at what seemed to be like a giant, terrifying dilemma, they thought that this dilemma thing was bigger and stronger and more mighty than their Lord. Um, Israel was looking at a, a pitiful man. A man who had been humbled and a kingdom that had been humbled 10 times in a row without fail. This was a pitiful, disgraceful man, a creature, a, a finite being who was no divine being at all. Every time in the Exodus narrative, when God sent judgment, Pharaoh hit his knees and begged for mercy. And here he is presenting his worldly might and power. And the people say, it's all over. Woe is us. Verse 11, we are as good as dead. The people of God have forgotten the might, strength, and power of the Lord. The people of God have forgotten all the signs, miracles, and wonders that the Lord worked on their behalf to free them. Satan here in this picture has tricked Israel into thinking that there is no hope. And so, in light of this great grand army, they're hopeless and they despair. And here's the beauty of the text. Finally, for the first time, we see Moses, that doubtful man, finally come to his senses after he saw all those signs, miracles, and wonders. The first time in this book we see him step up as a leader is right here in verse 13. And in the context of this great army and this fearful people and this even greater God, look what he says in verse 13. Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of God. Sit back 
do nothing and watch God work miracles and wonders for you. You don't have to do anything but stand. This battle is not yours. This battle is the Lord's. You see, oftentimes we hear maybe that famous passage in in Ephesians chapter 6, which um, talks about the armor of God, putting on the armor of God. It's a very well-known passage. And so the logical conclusion after putting on the armor of God is what? To fight. But did you know in, in that passage, that is not the command or imperative? That's not what the text says. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord, in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you might be able to stand. Verse 13, same chapter, stand firm. Verse 14, same chapter, armor of God, stand therefore. There is no commandment in that Ephesians 6 for the people of God to fight. The imperative is to stand. Why? Because fighting is Christ's job. Why? Because fighting in the Old Testament is the the Lord's job. This is what Moses is saying. Israel, don't fear. Stand firm. Sit back in the power of his might and let him work miracles for you. Our God is the God who fights for his people. Our God is the dispeller of fear. Our God thus is the bringer of hope and comfort. Those who trust in him, their faces shall be radiant. They will never be put to shame. They are protected from danger. He alone delivers his people, Israel, from their distress. Our God is a warrior against the forces of evil and the bringer of hope and confidence to his people. Do you want to know what would have been the more appropriate response for Israel as they saw Pharaoh and the Martins marching? Laughter. How'd you look at that? Here comes that sorrowful, pitiful man. What a joke. <laughs> this guy thinks he's going to come for us? He's out of his mind. What is he thinking? What an idiot. Has he not learned that he is no match for the sovereign power of God? Has he not learned that we belong to the Lord and the Lord has freed us, his people? His power is irreversible. Laughter, it would have been the response. Do you remember the the godly woman in Proverbs chapter 31, verse 25, which she does? The author says that she's clothed with strength and dignity, and when she considers her future, what does she do? She laughs at the time to come. As she considers the future, the uncontrollable, what she may or may not know, what she may or may not be able to control that will come to her and her family's life, She laughs with hope and confidence in the Lord. (laughs) Oh my goodness, what what a prophetic laugh that was. No, no, I'm really being serious. That's what it sounds like. That's what it sounds like. Childlike laughter as we find hope and comfort in our strong heavenly Father. You see, true laughter and smiling from the Christian is not a result of um, self-help. 
It is not a result of, I got this. It is not even the result of skepticism like Sarah's wife, Abraham, in Genesis. True gospel laughter and smiling in the face of life and uncontrollable circumstances comes from hope and confidence in God that nothing can stop his plan. That the Lord is steadfast and unchanging. That he deals with his people covenantally, always the same, culminating in Jesus. Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed people saying, let's burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords. But guess what? He who sits in the heavens laughs at them. You see, our God laughs at his enemies because he knows who he is and we can laugh too because we know who we are. We are the children of God. When you look at your life and uncertainty and um, possibly harm that might come your way, I just want to let you know, spiritual warning. Here it is. Ready? This is what Satan wants to use to get you to hopelessness and despair. He wants to trick you into thinking that your situation and trial is stronger and bigger and mightier than the Lord. And if he does this, guess where we end up? right here in this text, with terror, with fear, with anxiety, with depression, with woe, with dread. This is what happens when Satan comes and we believe those lies. My brothers and sisters, no one is bigger or stronger than our God. By the power of God, the Father rose Christ from the dead. Our Savior triumphed over sin and death. Life's greatest dilemma and hardship. And and yet we see our God raising Christ from the dead. We have a hope, an unshakable hope that cannot be broken. Now faith is the assurance of what we hope for and the certainty of what we do not see. For in this hope we are saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he can already see? So we fix our eyes on not what is seen by what, but, but on what is unseen. For we, God's people, Walk by faith and not by sight. I'm asking you this morning, is there anything in your life story that Satan is using you to strip your hope and get you to despair? Is there any fallen condition factor of living in this world that, that, that Satan is mocking you, saying you got no help or support, you're lonely, you're a victim, you are helpless? Take Satan by the hand and lead him to the hill called Calvary far away and there show him that crucified Savior and then after journeying, take him to the empty tomb and say, my God rose from the dead. 
Let me also just say this. Gospel laughter doesn't mean we can't cry. This cry in this text is fallen because it's a cry of doubt. But Jesus cried. Why did he cry? Because his friend Lazarus died. And so we're encouraged to cry. But the gospel is so powerful that we can do both at the same time. You ever seen it? It's the most beautiful thing. If you haven't, you pray the Lord shows you that. You can laugh and cry at the same time. Tears could be rubbing down your face and you can be bubbling with joy knowing that this ain't the end of the story. My challenge to you in this first point is not to believe more, is not to like stir up this like gumption to believe more. That's not the gospel. That would be faith on your own strength. What is my challenge to you? By faith, with a little faith that you might have, give it to Jesus, stand back and watch him work and he'll prove himself faithful to you. Say, Lord, the situation's hard. I believe, help my unbelief. Here as I cry, would you work miracles for me to woo me to yourself? I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Save me. And then you could be laughing and crying all at the same time and God will just promise to save. Amen. Point number one, what we see, I challenge you not to walk by your sight, but by faith. And I'd like to show you now, point number two, how God works. In the uh, next scene of this story, um, what ended up happening here is that Pharaoh eventually reaches the Israelite camp, and uh, God, through Moses, um, his leadership, performs a miracle, the parting of the sea, and uh, the Israelites go on and pass through dry land. The most important part of the sermon is when we read the text. And so we're going to read. Verse 19 begins and says this. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night with one coming near or without one coming near the other. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. Then the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and horsemen. In the morning, watched the Lord in the pillar of fire, and of a cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them and the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. 
what I want to show us here about this second point concerning how God's work is two, how God works is two things, twofold. Number one, that God works sovereignly, and number two, He also works in least expected ways. I um I hinted at God's sovereignty in the first point, but I'm going to say it again here, and that is his, that His sovereignty is found in His pre-ordering of this miracle, as He in the 13th and here in the 14th chapter intentionally led e, uh, Israel to the Red Sea. In other words. God intentionally positioned Israel's back against the Red Sea wall and then proceeded to harden Pharaoh's heart and pursue them in this. God, God set this, he did this. He made this situation. I was on a website called the Gospel Coalition this week reading an article by, by a man named Nathan Rose. And here's what Nate said. God intentionally puts himself and also his people at a great disadvantage in order to work a great deliverance so that he can display his great glory to all people. This is what God has been doing for chapters throughout this book. He has been sovereignly ordaining every detail down to the smallest measure, working out both good and evil conditions found in men in life and working it all out to accomplish his greater plan, which was leading his people through the sea. You need to know this. If you interrogate the text, there is not one dot or iota that the Lord prophesies that will come true that doesn't come true in this story. And so Israel here is dreading this situation as their backs are against the sea because they think that this fallen condition factor has the potential to thwart God's sovereign plan. But what is God here? If we had a picture of God in heaven, what would he be doing? Uh, he would be laughing. And he would be remaining unanxious, without fear, knowing exactly what is to come. God writes the story before the story begins so that the next chapter of the story is not up for debate. And so, yes, if you look there, the text says plainly that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But at the greater story, it also says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And so here we have an example of divine sovereignty and human responsibility working mysteriously together to accomplish God's greater plan of redemption for his people. So man is, tr God is truly sovereign and man is truly free to have will and it just works. There's this guy, a theologian named R.C. Sproul, and R.C. Sproul said this. If you don't believe that God ordains everything that comes to pass, uh, simply put, you don't believe in God. This idea is not uniquely Christian. This idea does not divide Presbyterians from Methodists, Methodists from Lutherans, Lutherans from Anglicans, and it does not distinguish between Christians, the Islamic, and those of the Jew Jewish faith. It is a distinction between theism and atheism. If God is not sovereign, then God is not God. If there, was one, if there is one maverick molecule in the universe, one molecule running loose outside the scope of God's sovereign ordination, then ladies and gentlemen, there is not one slightest confidence that we can have that any promise God has ever made about the future will come to pass. 
And so if all the major world religions believe that God is sovereign, what then makes the Christian doctrine of God's sovereignty any different or better? That's the question. And here's the answer. The cross of Christ. In other words, it is through the person and work of Jesus that the Christian is assured, even in the midst of sin, suffering, or hardship, that God himself is sovereignly working out and producing in them something glorious behind their, beyond their ability to comprehend. Jesus came to earth, didn't despise suffering or the cross, but instead pursued death for the sake of honoring his Father's will and his death and resurrection resulted in the most glorious thing, which is the salvation of God's people. God the Father now calls us beautiful. And so if it was this way with our Savior, so the promise from the death and resurrection of Christ is that so it is with us, God's people, for those who follow Jesus. It is that the pathway to glory is paved with suffering. But God, as he has set it up this way, didn't in the beginning, distanced himself from that suffering, but he knew, he knew it uniquely. He entered into that suffering and then through the death and resurrection of Christ, triumphed over it. And so this is the divine promise that we get through our suffering as we follow faithfully Jesus in this fallen world. That God is working out something good. Maybe we can see it, maybe we can't see it, but those who are in Jesus Christ get it. And I think this is the thing that we're tempted to forget. Just like the Israelites here. They were uh, tempted to believe that their journey to the promised land was going to be one of comfort and ease. But it's not what the scriptures say. It's not the pathway of following Jesus. What I want for us to recognize here from this text is that the first major life event in Israel's faith story through the wilderness is conflict. And disobeyed. God just brought them this. Why did God allow this to come to Israel? Here's the answer. To refine and strengthen their faith so that they grow in knowledge and understanding of who God truly is. They just met him. They did not know him. They need it to learn more about the person, character, love, and work of their God. First Peter 4, Christian, don't be surprised when fiery trials come your way, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when glory is revealed. Suffering and the life of a Christian, dilemma in the life of a Christian is not a curse, but a blessing. It is hurtful. It is, shame, it was, it is hurtful. It is, it, is, it is terrible. It's a product of the fall, but by and through Jesus Christ, the promises our sovereign, powerful God uses it to make something good. He purposes all things together for the good of those who love him. And so the world looks at us Christians and says, why would you continue to call God good in your suffering? Why would you 
call God good and all this evil? Why do you spend all of your time, money, energy, and resources on people and the church when all this hardship has come your way? Here's the answer. Because our God in and through the power of Christ is making all things new in and through us. His glory is being revealed. His kingdom is coming and our Savior will one day return. Though outwardly we're wasting away, inwardly we're being renewed day by day and all this is achieving an eternal weight for us in glory. The cross of Christ is folly to those who are perishing but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. God chose the foolish things in this world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things in this world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly and the despised so that no one may boast in his presence. Jesus Christ for us has become the wisdom of God, the righteousness of God, the holiness of God, and redemption itself. Hey, if you're asking the question and you are in Christ, why is this happening to me? I say with as much gentleness as I can, the Lord is after your heart and he wants to produce in you a type of hope that cannot be put to shame or broken. He wants to be your savior. And so you can cry and we will cry with you as you experience pain. But we will attempt to put hope in God and his promise to return and trust that his spirit inside of us will help us to smile and maybe even laugh. Amen. Amen. I'd like to finish in the third point and show you why our Savior saves. Um, oftentimes, if I could just be honest and confess something, oftentimes in the Reformed context, especially in Presbyterian circles, we have this document which we call the Westminster Confession of Faith. And I hear the first um, question asked and quoted so much. Uh, the first question is, um, what is the chief end of man? It's a great question. A couple years ago, I was riding, um, riding with this young man in my passenger seat around Lilburn. We were talking about God. And uh, he was a young man who was born in, and raised in a Christian household that had come to a position in his life that he actually despised the idea of believing in God. And to make his point, he quoted the confession. He said, James, what is the chief end of man? And I was going to answer, but he answered for me. He said, I'll tell you, it's to glorify God. And uh, he said it bitterly. I was waiting for him to say the second half of the, uh, the answer. The second half is to enjoy him forever. But he stopped there. And as he stopped there, it all made sense. You see, God to him was an egotistical jerk who existed alone to create a creation, alone to serve him as servants and slaves. That makes sense. If the Westminster Confession of Faith, the answer to the first question was, what is the chief of a man to glorify God? That would be no gospel at all. Why? Because God's glory is uniquely found in the blessing and salvation of his people. You got to get that. This indeed is the good news of Christianity. Before the world began, God the Father was delighting in and loving Christ, his son. He was loved before the world began. He was loving. And then he created and preordained Christ to come to the world and save rebellious men in their sin. For what purpose? 
then to take rebellious man by his free grace alone and reconcile them back into relationship with him so he would what? So he would give his love, the same love in which he loved Christ with eternally before the world began, before time existed, and pour it out on us. That's the gospel. This is why God himself in this text saves. If I were to close this sermon and say to you, God saves for his own glory. Hey, guys. Can you come get them? (laughs) Thank you. It's all right. It happens, man. What I want for us to know is that this is the second time in the sermon that God has ordained a little children to disrupt, and I wonder if he's sending a message. I was just talking about the eternal love that God the Father had for Christ, his son, and now I'm trying to give that to you. God the Father is completely satisfied. Christ indeed is actually exalted through his saving work for his people. God the Father loves Israel, his son, the church, just as much as he loves Christ. You are loved as much as Jesus. For what purpose? Well, Israel here in this story is in sin. They're doubting God. They're actually craving Egypt. And yet God, even in their sin, as they doubt him, says, no, 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 you're mine. You are mine. Pharaoh's trying to take you back out of my salvation and bring you back into slavery. But that ain't going to happen because I'm God. Now let me show you how my power is unmatched. I saved you. I part the sea. I pour wrath on the evil one who is your oppressor. And then I display my power by floating dead bodies up on the shore. And why did he do it? For his glory so his people would worship him. And so we move into the New Testament and the Apostle Peter talks about this wonderfully, how the church is the new Israel, thus how Jesus himself is our ultimate exodus. Jesus is our exodus. How so? Well, God the Father displayed his power on the cross where he disarmed the powers and rulers of authority of Satan. He made a mockery of Satan on the cross. And then to show the significance of that one act and the the assured salvation, the irreversible grace. What did Jesus then do? From a corpse, he became full of life and was risen by God from the grave. Thus, we have an empty tomb. Satan wants you to fret and worry and doubt your salvation as if your sin or dilemma or fright can remove you from God's commitment of grace. But there I point you to Christ, the Exodus, who freed you from the power of sin and death, of Satan indeed, who crushed the head of the serpent on the cross and calls you by grace to enjoy his love. You're gods. You're forever gods. God is committed to you. The blood is powerful enough to wash away all of your sin. And it has. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, what I'm offering to you this morning is the glory of God. You want to be taken out of hopelessness or fear or anxiety or despair? Is your heart troubled? Come and put your little faith in Christ the Exodus and you will be delivered to the hope of eternal life. Amen?
Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for Christ the Exodus. Christ defeated our greatest enemy on the cross. He made him look foolish. Satan's accusations are powerless. All they are is lies. Set us up for the table now to come to this with bold confidence, knowing that as we drink this wine and juice and eat this bread, we proclaim our Lord and Savior until he comes again. We praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.